0: Hello, and welcome to the Lasting Impact Wellness Podcast, where together we explore ways to help you optimize your health and achieve sustainable well-being. No one deserves to live an unhealthy life because they are overtasked, overstimulated, and overwhelmed. I'm your co-host, Dr. Laura Hayes, and we'll be joined by Dr. Parker Hayes as we explore new perspectives and strategies rooted in self-awareness, deep connections, and science-based practices designed to create lasting impact for you and those around you. Please keep in mind this podcast is for the purpose of education, introspection, and community connection and should not be mistaken for medical advice. Be sure to subscribe and share with others. Let's be well together.
1: Welcome to Lasting Impact Wellness, the podcast that helps you optimize your health and well being through science based practices, practical knowledge, and honest discussions. I'm your host today, Dr. Parker Hayes. One of the greatest challenges we all face in optimizing our health and well-being is making changes and establishing practices that are sustainable. Diets get started and crashed, fitness plans fire up with a new year, and many are sidelined by Valentine's Day. We'll get to it after the next more pressing agenda item, be it imminent work or family concerns, life setbacks, or just our own indiscretions. But are we really refractory to change? I suggest we are not, and we're capable of thinking beyond ourselves as well. Sustainability in the health and well-being space weaves together the well-being of individuals, but also communities and the earth itself. Healthier, happier populations that result are more productive, more successfully reproductive, and promote the advancement of policies and paths that keep ourselves and our environment on an illuminated course. Sustainability and wellness incorporates components beyond our individual health and addresses the broader impact of our choices on the environment, society, and future generations. In industry... Sustainability has its own broad definitions and thought. Addressing development specifically in 1987, the United Nations Brundtland Commission defined sustainability as meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. Now definitions seek a balance between three E's. First, economic growth. Second, environmental care. And third, societal equity or well-being. The parallels in health and well-being are many. We can't sustain healthy practices if they are unaffordable or make us go broke. We can't actually catch all the fish or pollute the air and water, even if it's fun at the time, if it trashes our world. And we can't sustain health or well-being practices that detract from the health and well-being of others. It's hard to be sustainable, but we don't just shrink away from the challenge and hope that our needs will go away. And so it goes in industry. Have you boarded a plane outside? Do you know what jet fuel smells like? Airlines, military aircraft, and the aerospace industry are not the first places one would imagine if they were looking for easy work in establishing sustainable practices. But that doesn't mean we can't try or we'll never succeed. Some have risen to that challenge and are attempting to meet it head on. My guest today is Chris Raymond. Chris Raymond is the Chief Sustainability Officer of the Boeing Company, and serves as a member of the company's executive council. He's responsible for further advancing the company's approach on aerospace sustainability priorities, stakeholder-oriented engagement, reporting, and the company's performance. Raymond's executive council responsibilities include driving shared awareness of sustainability trends, opportunities, and risks to guide company decision-making and global impact He reports directly to the CEO and to the Governance and Public Policy Committee of the Boeing Board. Chris began his career as an engineer at Boeing's operation in Long Beach, California. He has served as vice president for several businesses and functions across Boeing, leading him to become vice president of sustainability, strategy, and corporate development prior to this role. Chris is an associate fellow in the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, a fellow of the Royal Aeronautical Society, and a member of the MIT Climate Sustainability Consortium. He earned a bachelor's degree in aeronautical engineering from the University of Illinois, a fine institution, as well as a contract management certificate and a master's of business administration from the University of California, Irvine. Chris Raymond, welcome to the podcast. How are you today, sir?
0: I'm doing great, Parker. Thank you for having me.
1: I'd like to start with learning a bit more about you and your career journey. Can you provide us with a brief overview of where you started and how it led to your current role as Boeing's first ever chief sustainability officer?
0: Yeah, that's right. I could have never predicted this would be a role I'd probably have in my career, but I've been in aerospace now for about 37 years. And I came up as an engineer, as you referenced. I I moved into the business world. I've gotten the honor to lead several of our businesses at the company. And I ended up taking a couple of special assignments, uh, to be candid. One of those was following two terrible accidents that we had at the company with the 737 Max. And I got asked to take a special assignment during that time to start thinking about re-earning trust with people. And then COVID hit. And during the COVID, the focus went to our employees, went to the health and well-being of our workforce, our supply chains. And it was really during that time we started talking about the topic of sustainability and should we wait until after COVID to put more attention on it because it had decimated the aerospace industry. And we decided not to wait. And I got the call from our CEO who said, hey, we're going to establish this position for the first time in the company's history. And would you do it? And I have to admit, I was a bit intimidated because you never know what all is going to be involved in a new assignment that's never existed before. But I was honored to be asked to take the job. And I've always believed that a big part of an assignment like this is how do you earn people's trust and hopefully their preference. And I just sort of saw this topic of sustainability as as really aligned to that idea of earning trust and preference with certain stakeholders.
1: So what's it like? To be in the C-suite of one of the largest aerospace and defense manufacturers in the world, give it, give us a glimpse of what a chief sustainability officer role is like in a large company like that.
0: Well, I don't mind telling you, Parker, that that night that the CEO asked me to take the job out, and of course I said yes. But then I did go home and I Googled what does his chief sustainability officer do, and. Uh, you know, it was a bit intimidating. I didn't feel like I had the makeup of a lot of people that I started to study that had that position in other companies or other industries. And, But then I ultimately realized the job is about leading change. The job is about looking out and being self-aware of what's going on around you and having to sort of internalize that, translate it in a way that your company or your industry will understand it and then try to drive something different. And so what I really do is I interact a lot with our key stakeholders, certainly our employees, our customers, our regulators, suppliers, our communities, and our investors at times. And we have a reporting function that we have to drive for the company to disclose information about the company along our sustainability dimensions. But really the part of the job I relish the most is being out engaging those stakeholders and learning what do they expect from us? How do they define sustainability in terms of what they want from our company? And then figure out ways for us to deliver that if we can to them.
1: So, out of curiosity, looking back now, much more established in the role and adroit at its various sub roles, how accurate were your initial Google searches in terms of what a CSO does? And how has that evolved to this point?
0: Well, what I had the benefit now of reflecting upon is I think at the time, what I was entrusted to do was learn a bit more about the topic. I knew something about the topic from the previous roles you referenced in the job I had before this one, but I'm certainly deeper now on the subject matter of sustainability, you know, down to what is it? You, I find often you have to ask people, what do you think sustainability is? And in a company sense, it usually encompasses your environmental stewardship, your social practices of the company and the governance of the company? And are you a values-based company that governs accordingly, transparently? And I realized I was being entrusted to learn the topic of sustainability, but what I was really drawing upon was my knowledge of the company and the knowledge of our industry to be able to hopefully drive some of that change that we talked about. And I think it would be very hard for an outsider to get dropped into a situation like that. without the relationships, the understanding, even the terminology of aerospace or of Boeing and, and try to drive change like that. So I guess I was entrusted to learn the topic of sustainability more deeply, but then benefit from all the experiences and jobs and relationships I had in
1: the company. I can't imagine that many people, if any, were more familiar with all the layers in your company than you, having started as an engineer and worked Through so many different roles. And before that, McDonnell Douglas, as I recall. That said, when you enter a new role as a CSO, were you surprised at some of the things that you found in great need of change? Um,
0: yeah, I think when you start a new role that's never existed, it's a little intimidating. You have to kind of size up what you have to get done first. There were some things that were just sort of i'd say relatively easy to identify that we need to start doing like we had never published a sustainability report an integrated sustainability report and for most public companies you'll notice that they're doing that now so we are now just issued our third annual sustainability report but we had never done that so some things were pretty easy to identify hey we're going to have to do that and then other things were a bit more challenging to figure out, well, how do we really become a a company that emits less greenhouse gas emissions over time? Or what can we really do in the industry beyond Boeing's four walls to help the industry become more sustainable? Or do we have the right wellness practices in the company? Things like that. And so for that, we established a core team, a core sustainability team. But we really have to work with just about every element of the company over time to, to sort of connect the work that they do with this topic of sustainability.
1: So I'm already thinking of various comparisons here. If we take on a role as our own chief sustainability officer in terms of our health or well-being, we may find things that are unsurprising and need to be worked through promptly, even if for the first time. But then as we engage a greater level of scrutiny, we may formulate a list of things that are going to be greater challenges going forward. So since we have that context, help us understand your views on the parallels between making people more sustainable through health and well-being and making an industry more sustainable.
0: You know, I thought a lot about that question when you first approached me with this idea that we talk and I, I kind of go back to the six pillars that you and Laura talk about all the time. And a couple of them, I think, are translatable between an individual and an industry. One is just being self-aware. You know, do, you, do you kind of know where you sit? And you know, this industry is in a period of remarkable demand. Post-COVID, the world has wanted to travel again. Flights are up, flights are full. So there's a lot of demand in the industry right now. Things would be relatively going well. But you have to look beyond sort of the current moment and look ahead and say, well, what could really impact the industry or what threats are there to the industry in this continual growth that we seek? And I think when you start to look at the problem that way, you can sort of see that there are some things you better pay attention to now, even though they seem to be far off in the future, like how does the industry reduce the amount of carbon emissions that it creates when airplanes fly. But then I think about some of the things you and Laura talk about, about relationships. And one of the things we always say about aviation is it connects the world. You know, in the late 1950s, when jet travel was established, it made going anywhere in the world possible within a day. And you think about what that's done now to connect people, connect cultures, create understanding establish or maintain relationships with people. You know, aviation has a very important societal role. I would almost say now an integral role in modern society. It's almost taken for granted, but there are these emissions impacts that we have to deal with. So we just have to deal with both those elements of the near-term and also the longer-term aspects of sustainability.
1: People may be very successful in the moment, but not necessarily in tune with their own health and well-being for the long term. You know, people who are crushing it at work, but don't take care of themselves or vice versa. Is there a parallel there with industry? And how do you think industries, if so, come to that realization?
0: Well, I've always been a big believer of bring the outside in. And I think as individuals or as companies, we're we're sometimes reluctant to change until we have to. And as an individual, you and Laura talk about this all the time, trying to maintain some harmony or balance between those six pillars of wellness and our long-term impact that we can have in the health span that we have as as individuals. And, you know, hopefully we don't get to a point where there's some crisis that knocks on our door to force that change. Hopefully we can become self-aware and recognize that change before it's a crisis. I used to, in my business career, I I was struck by the idea of an IBM or a Kodak. and Why does one face into their death and survive, and why does the other one not survive in the case of Kodak, one of our great American companies? And so when I think about things like that, I always think about, you know, hopefully we can become aware of these things that could affect the industry or destroy the industry or be a threat to the industry and actually start to do things about them before that threat actually occurs. But I think that's very hard for individuals and companies to face into those things that could happen versus the here and the now. And we just have to pay attention to both. We best do that when we're engaging a wide variety of stakeholders around us and, and listening, truly listening to what those people are saying about the industry and then try to do something about it now, not wait until you have to because some regulation comes into play or some penalty comes into play. I don't think that's what leading companies do. And I think that we're trying to be ahead of that.
1: In a different context, you and I have had a conversation about General C.Q. Brown, who is the head of the Air Force and his leadership style. Summarizing some, he espouses having a connection to the segments of an organization that are actually doing the work and not just following overly strict chain of command and hearing from superiors only, but finding out what individuals on the ground are actually producing and thinking at the time. Tell me a little bit about your leadership style at such a huge organization like the Boeing Company. You've taken on a whole variety of roles of increasing importance in leadership. Tell me about your style, but also what advice do you have for our listeners in terms of leading in these different roles and through very adverse times. Yeah. I think
0: in one of your first podcasts, you talk about leadership lessons in the emergency room and how you have to show up and remain calm, assess the situation, you know, really listen. I think those things are true in business, just like they are in your room that you operate in. And one thing I've learned is we have a saying on our team show up and that usually means in person, Uh, be humble, be credible, and hopefully you'll be memorable. And I, I just think the communications element of whatever job we're doing is so important. And as I've moved through different leadership roles, I, I think I've tried like General CQ Brown to talk to the people that are closest to the work, make sure you're finding time to get out and engage people. I've always found any job I relish is a job that has some external engagement to it. That's what I love about this job. And just by going out and truly listening is important i also think when you're a leader you have to realize the ripple that you can create in a pond is big and i had a former mentor who used to say as you become a leader every day you bring a bucket of gas and a bucket of water to work you will come up on a fire as a leader or a manager in your business world and you can either pour your bucket of gas on that fire and make it hotter Or you can pour your bucket of water on that fire and calm everybody down and get them to realize there was probably a positive intent here. Let's not assume things too quickly. And then let's go get some facts and really go talk to some people about it. And I've I've always kept that analogy in my head, that bucket of water, bucket of gas, because I think as leaders, we can really change the situation by how we react and how we behave. And I know you've talked about that as well and how you show up.
1: That's a terrific analogy. I'm definitely going to keep and use that one. It is reminiscent of another that I use. People talk about the burnout in emergency medicine, just continuing this metaphor, I guess. Emergency departments are a safety net in medicine for all comers who need care. Well, being a part of that safety net can either be fuel for you or it can be an incendiary to your own burnout. And you choose how you wish to utilize it. I like yours better, though. It's a bit more stark pouring the correct bucket of water or gas. So with these formidable leadership roles, how have you balanced all this with your own personal life?
0: You know, I'm not sure I'm a great example of always keeping those things in check. I think it gets back to finding some time to reflect whether that's your spiritual practices or finding your quiet time or taking walks, but somehow finding some time to just ask yourself, are you totally out of balance? And I think your six pillars are a good sort of checklist, if you will, sometimes to sort of say, how am I doing in these six areas? You and Laura have done a great job at defining those six in a way that most people could use them as a personal checklist. I know just since I've started listening to your podcast, I have, but the one I would really pull on partly because of, because of our relationship, but I think it's just critical in a job or your personal life or your well-being is relationships with others. The idea of getting anything done, you have to have relationships to do that. Or or if you're in a tough time and you need encouragement or a growth mindset, you have to really believe that we all have a role to help and encourage one another. And I, I, I really pulled on that. Uh, one of your pillars, because I think it's the one, to me, that gets you through a lot of difficult times. And sometimes I probably haven't balanced it all that well. But in the end, if you keep people first and you treat every person, regardless of title, as the same, and you realize you can learn from every person, I think that's critical to your own health and well-being in the workplace and in life.
1: Although we both work in very different industries, it's interesting to me that there are such significant parallels in terms of leadership attributes and balancing your work life with personal life. So let's talk about high-stress jobs for a moment. Can you share any anecdotes about high-stress situations, uh, meetings, negotiations, things that you doubtless have been a part of over the years, how you prepared for the moment, and how you recovered to a healthy place before the next one?
0: It's a great question, Parker. I I try to probably over-prepare, and I usually try to think about who's the audience. A lot of people, I think, get so fixated in their own remarks or what they're going to say that you forget that there's somebody out there you're trying to communicate with. And One thing that I know our communications team and I do a lot of when I'm going to go do any kind of public speaking is really, really try to understand who's sitting out there in the audience and what do you expect them to take away? It's going to be very different if I'm in a room of aeronautical engineers versus I'm in a room of Wall Street investors versus I'm at a college university talking to students. And how you translate this topic and convey what the company's doing or what your company believes has to be adjusted a little bit to those audiences. So I really try to prepare thinking about who's the audience, how technical can I be, et cetera. And I find that takes effort, you know, to put that kind of preparation in and adjust your standard pitch, if you will. It's a lot easier to go give your standard pitch, but really thinking through that that party you're trying to communicate with and then, you know, seeing what they take away. One mentor said, go up to one person in a big audience. I don't care if the audience is a thousand people go up to that one person and say, what did you take away? And just listen to what they say. And you know, were you, were you 20%? Did you get it a hundred percent? Did you get it 20? It can be pretty intimidating to do it, but at the end of the day, that's what effective communications is about. And as far as preparing, I try to take a lot of feedback, and get ready for the next one, you can always do it a little bit better. And it gets back to just being humble, trying to be credible and realize that you probably can get better for the next one if you have some people that'll give you honest feedback.
1: I know you have been engaged in some very big time negotiations or presentations. Is there anything you do as a ritual with yourself or for yourself to prepare you for the high stakes stress of the moment? I have
0: learned to just sort of simply breathe. Sometimes I think we get pretty tensed up when we're about to go on stage or somebody's calling your name and you're going out to a big audience, not all of who you're gonna know. So sometimes mm-hmm. I just try to remember that there's a good chance you know more about this topic or more about this topic at Boeing at least than most of those people are gonna be in the audience. So take a deep breath, and then try to make it relevant to the audience. And the other thing that I've learned how to do is a bit of an icebreaker in our industry is sometimes when I go into a really big room, I I like to ask the question of who flew here today? You know, you'll usually see a pretty large number of hands go up in a room at a conference or something, and it's just a bit of a reminder that there is a goodness to this industry, even for the people that think, you know, we've got to do something about the carbon emissions and effects of the industry. There's a good side of this industry, too, and what it does for people.
1: Not infrequently when I'm concluding an interaction with an emergency patient. I will ask them, now, when you get home and your family says, what did the doctor say, what are you going to tell them? And if they don't have a clue what to say, then I know I've got some more work to do.
0: Yeah, we probably didn't do our jobs too well.
1: Wow, wow, what a great discussion. Is there anything else you think you'd like to share with our listeners today?
0: Well, there were two things. One, I just first, I just wanted to thank you and Laura for the work you're doing. I think in the world we're in today, in particular, uh, a world that's been somewhat isolated and divided by COVID is coming out of that and is as divided sometimes as our world can be. I, I think the work you're doing around individual and group wellness is extremely important. So I just would compliment both of you for that. I think the thing I was thinking about ending on is I had a pastor. That used to say sometimes problems can seem so daunting that that as individuals, we don't feel like we can do anything about them or we can't really personally change the situation. And so then we do nothing because we think the problem is so big, our efforts won't matter. But he used to say, do for one what you wish you could do for many. That's always stuck with me, whether it's on a topic like wellness or a topic like sustainability, or you may not be able to accomplish all six pillars right away. But if you can just work on one of those things at a time, get better in some way on one of those things. And I know I think about that a lot in our industry because as individuals, we often say, well, what can I do to help make aviation or aerospace more sustainable? And I could go into the litany of things that we do at the company to promote employee conservation behavior as an example. But so I think do for one what you wish you could do for many. And even though these subjects can seem daunting, beginning is the important thing. And you can always take the next step tomorrow, but take the first step today.
1: That's terrific advice. You've helped us to flesh out many parallels between sustainability in health and well being and industry. Durable, ongoing practices that meet our present needs for health, yet don't impinge on others' ability to do the same, whether those are our current peers or even future generations. Sunlight, clean water, fresh air, healthy food sources, they don't just feel good or seem attractive, they're vital to our individual physical health and our greater well-being. Further, they're components of planetary health, the only planet we have currently. I'd like to reiterate lastly the importance of sustainability in our relationships. The interdependence we have as humans is a source of energy. Yes, it's a fuel, not an affliction to be born. Chris and I were born on the same day, and I'm proud to count him among my closest friends, one who devotes his formidable talents to sustainability. Chris Raymond, thank you so much for being with all of us today.
0: Hunter, be with you, Parker. Thank you.
1: That's all for today's episode. Please send your input, your ideas, your suggestions for future guests to us at info@lastingimpactwellness.com. At Please visit our website lastingimpactwellness.com to learn more about us and our programs for individuals and organizations. As always, thank you for your time and your energy. I'm Dr. Parker Hayes. Let's be well together.